are live with Stephanie Jolene here on Mike and Kristen. What is going on, Stephanie? Happy to be here. Happy to be alive. We're happy to have you. <laughs> and this is the first time I've been in your presence or I haven't just completely like gone white and run away in shyness. And because you're just one of those. Why? Super cool people. Because that I'm so I... intimidating. And I'm well, to kind a of. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> You're just one of these people that I've admired your work and just who you are. So it's nice to have you in this kind of more comfortable oh, setting where I can be you. like, we can just hang out. Like, she's not that scary. <laughs> <laughs> no, I take it. I feel like people tell me that I'm intimidating often. Which I'm like, I'm okay with that reputation. <laughs> yeah. The first time I remember actually seeing you in person may have been in the, I think, Toronto airport. We were both en route to yeah. L.A. And I kind of saw you from afar and I was trying to get a glimpse of your ticket to see if your name was on it mm -hmm. before I introduced myself. And you offered me beak. goldfish. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you made me feel at ease. That, that was a funny that was a funny experience because you and I were both in the airport flying to LA mm -hmm. and we didn't know each other, but you introduced yourself to me because we had like mutual friends and stuff. So we kind of, we knew who each other was. Yeah. And you had agreed to participate in an art show I was mm -hmm. doing to let me interview you. So I knew a little bit, but we had never met yeah. in person. So that was okay. kind of, I think I walked up and was like, hey, I'm the person who's going to be making this painting about about you yeah. so and that was funny because then when we landed in la i like we shared a cab or we yeah, shared an uber right. to our spot yeah which is funny <laughs> yeah it's a very uh i don't know that I, I don't know i feel like that's like a does that sound like a pretentious story like oh we just ran into each other in the airport on our way to well, la one of our many it was LA not trips. glamorous so don't uh yeah anyone listening don't get any illusions we shared a private here. jet you know <laughs> We shared a shitty Uber that we probably yeah. overpaid for, but yeah. we got where we needed to go. Yeah, it was funny. I think I was going to L.A. at that time for, because for a few years in a row, I would go to L.A. in January because my birthday's in January and I really hate my birthday. And I hate being in Nova Scotia in that time of year because it's always cold and shitty that time of year. So I would treat myself to a trip to L.A. Oh. on usually on my own for nice. my birthday. And I think that's maybe why I was going that time. Yeah. And I will, I always just use it as an excuse to like write while I'm there. Just like okay. write a script or whatever. So why there? On. Because it's just immersed in your field? Uh, yeah, because I just really like L.A. Well, I wanted to go somewhere warm. And L.A. is just, I'm not, like the novelty of L.A. has not worn off on me. Even mm -hmm. though I have visited many times and I have friends there now. But the idea of like actually just being in Hollywood, I just I just think it's just the coolest. And I just I'm not yet like I'm not too cool for that. I'm not like over it. I'm <laughs> yeah. just every time I'm there, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm in Hollywood right now. Like, it just doesn't seem real. And as, as a filmmaker, does being in the epicenter of film, does that inspire you? Or are you trying to get into that? Like, is is that a world you're trying to enter or are you happy you're in your little niche here in Halifax in Canada. I don't really ever want to do the L.A. thing yeah. because I feel like our standards are so different. Like in Nova Scotia, I think I consider myself someone with good work ethic. And then if I go to L.A., I'm like, wow, I'm the laziest person I've ever met. Because <laughs> yeah. they're, they're obsessed, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. and I don't want a life where I'm obsessed and like workaholic type person. 
But I feel like out here, I'm like, no, I have a pretty good work ethic. Like I work every day to a degree, even if I'm just like an hour of emailing people or two hours of writing or even if it's just a small amount, I will do something every day in in a creative field. And to me, I feel like that means I have a good work ethic. Oh, but if you're that's seven days a week of working like that's a Yeah, great. technically, <laughs> yeah. even though I like sleep till noon every day and like watch the hours of sitcoms on TV or like spend a lot of time doing not work. I still consider like, no, 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 I still technically work every day, so I'm fine. But and that, then if I go to L.A., people are like, they would laugh at that amount of work. <laughs> and be like, you don't even work an, at all. Uh, as an artist, you need to you need to be out collecting, collecting experiences, right? Like, I, I feel like that mm-hmm. is 100% necessary. Like, like you have to have a, a lived life and things happen to you and things that you see. And even watching sitcoms is a way to do, you don't say okay i'm gonna do research now but in a way it ultimately is doing that like when i whatever go sit in a beach and look at the sunset i'm like oh this is inspiring i feel like creating Mm -hmm. or i feel like this this moment is like i can write off the sunset on my taxes (laughs) technical work technically work right now (laughs) (laughs) but i feel like artists are always working that's i guess yeah i do agree with you there my dad is more of a uh He's not an artist, so he, you know, traditionally, he knows more like traditional work, like you go to work from nine to five or whatever. Uh, So he has asked me before, he's like, how much, like, how long does it take you to write a movie? And I'm like, there's no way to answer that. Because when I'm not physically writing or typing on the keyboard, I'm thinking about a character or I'll I'll hear a turn of phrase someone uses. And I go, oh, that'd be an interesting thing for my character to Mm -hmm. say. So it's kind of, you're in the shower, you're thinking, you know, you guys probably both know this yeah. too and it's like it doesn't ever turn off so it's weird you can't answer that question how long does it take you to write a song i don't know yeah it's a such month, a common a year, question how long does it take years? to make a painting and I, like <laughs> i've gotten used to just telling people a lifetime that's my go-to uh, yeah. response now it's kind it's... of the truth even though it sounds like we it sounds like kind of like a funny answer like oh i never stop being an artist again i kind of feel like that's a, pretentious i'm always scared about sounding pretentious but (laughs) but it's kind of true because you're like well it doesn't actually turn off unless you are i think some writers do this where they go to the office and from nine to five they write and then they turn the brain off for the rest of the time and they go hang out with their kids or whatever but that's not me i've heard of writers who who follow that that specific type of scheduling and when the the timer or whatever goes off even if they're in the middle of a sentence they'll stop and yeah go I've heard that their, too. Do their thing, and mm. I, I feels I could like never such a missed that. opportunity if you're in the Ooh. flow of something, like because it takes sometimes a while to get into that state of creativity and output. But they probably just approach it in a different way than having to get into the flow state. You yeah. Know? Do you have yeah, a process, true. Steph? Like, is there something that you could say? Okay, I've been doing this long enough that this is kind of how this unfolds for me in a project. No. Uh, hmm. Not really. I mean, when it comes down to writing a script, I have a process in that. Like, I start with a with a, a beat sheet. And so the what I call the beat sheets, like, um, there's a book called Save the Cat, and it's kind of the, the traditional, like, the most famous script writing book that you could read. And then within that, they have a beat sheet, like, on page one, opening image, on, from page one to ten, set up the story from page, on page ten, na- like, uh, like state the theme to the protagonist on page. So they actually have this template that you follow. Okay. And uh, most movies that you've watched 
probably follow that template. Like it's a very common one. It's a three-act structure. And that's what I also do. So I'll take that beat sheet and I will literally write in, okay, the character will do this on that page and we'll do this. And then you kind of have the blueprint for the story. And then after the beat sheet's done, then I start writing the actual script. So I have a process in that way. Do you need to have a fully start to end conceptualized idea to write a script? Or have you ever started and like, I'll just see where this dialogue goes and what the end might be? Um, I'm probably have started scripts where I don't know where it's going. Yes. But no, most of the time I know at least the beginning and the end. Mm -hmm. And then the middle is like, oh, the middle is the worst. Because the (laughs) The beginning and the end is always fun. And then you're like, oh, oh, what am I going to do in the middle? (laughs) how am i gonna keep this interesting for another you know 60 pages in the middle or whatever alien abduction yeah yeah just throw in one of those and you're sad yeah that's why i like doing short films because with short films you really just need a beginning and an end like you set up a universe or a character that you think is interesting and then like one thing happens and the film's done it's a five minute film or a 10 minute film Mm -hmm. beautiful well, That's and I, I can appreciate why your dad or others have this question or curiosity about length of time, because sitting in an hour and a half to two hour full length feature film, it's just it, it kind of blows your mind how many hours and details must go into that. I don't know mm-hmm. that everyone has that same recognition or appreciation. Like we're, it's so easy to consume film and television, particularly in the arts now that I think there's probably a bit of that disconnect, but I know in being creative people ourselves here in our home, like we know how long it takes to make a song or to make a painting and all the behind the scenes stuff that goes into that. So I I can appreciate the curiosity, but I don't know if there's mm-hmm. any way to really comment on or explain like the level of detail that must go into that massive of a creative project. Yeah, there's. There are so many different departments that you have to make creative decisions for when you're when you're the director that you just that maybe people that don't work in the film industry just haven't considered. Oh, you also have to choose like when your character's wearing a watch, someone will come up to you with five watches and say, Stephanie, which watch do you like? Like, and you're you making have all to make these all decisions. decisions. Yeah. And then you go, oh, right. It's not enough to just write in the script. The person glances at their watch. Right. Like, you know, so like down to those details, you have to make a decision about. And you're you have heads of departments. So you have like a head of the like the production designer would be involved or in charge of like the props and the furniture in the person's house and all of that stuff. So it's not like you're micromanaging and you have to go shopping for all of those things. Or So obviously people are thinking about it and asking you questions too, but as a director, you do have the final say. So people will come to you with options and then you have that say. But then, and that, that's, I said the production designer, but there's also like heads of like hair and makeup and wardrobe and, and every, every camera departments and, and everything. So you kind of have to make all of those decisions so there's more to i guess if you're just watching a movie and then you're like oh this person is sitting on the couch or even if you're just writing or reading a script like so-and-so's like lays on the couch gets up lights a cigarette turns the tv on you know that's maybe what you're writing on the page well what is the tv look like what kind of cigarettes what is the lighter Mm -hmm. zippos or a lighter going to be right like these are the details that you have so many meetings before you start filming your movie and all these people are asking you these questions. And I go, I don't know. I wasn't thinking about that when I wrote it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but you got to answer the questions and then, and hopefully make 
your answer's good and consistent with the character choice. And like the production designer had had a cool conversation with me, like, what kind of um for, for night blooms especially, he's like, What kind of uh what kind of person is this? You know, this character? Is this someone who and then he had an idea, he was like, I think she's the type of person that well, always wanted to travel, but didn't really travel. But she collects these things, like these little, like knickknacks that you would get at gift shops, like with sand in it from like Cuba. But she's never been to Cuba, so I think she would have knickknacks like that around her house. And and I'm like, great. So like that's another character thing that my production designer came up with. And I'm like, yeah, that's a great idea. So so these details that like even if you're viewing it, you won't notice all of that. But there will be a feeling of consistency. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, would kind of like make your movie seem more professional or more amateur. I think if it has that consistency, even though the viewer might not be able to pinpoint those exact things. Right. I think a, a big thing about creating that sometimes we do it consciously, sometimes unconsciously, is the amount of decisions that has to be made. Mm-hmm. And when I'm recording a song in the producer mode like that is just non-stop decisions okay the snare right. needs to sounds like sound like this the the guitar needs more reverb just endless things and sometimes you just naturally feel that out and i'm sure just with with your film such some of the times you have you can just it just intuitively know what's what's going to happen but then it comes down to like the lighters and all those things where you're like oh i guess i have to start making all these small choices yeah. And it's it's neither good or bad. That's just part of the process. But it's kind of, uh, I think people on the, who don't create don't really see that. Like, oh, you wrote a song. You just sat there and just created it. Mm-hmm. But I had to think about, okay, does this make sense uh, chronologically? Does the grammar make sense? Like, there's all these little things you're, you're mm-hmm. considering. And I think making a feature-length movie, that would be like, that times a million. Yeah, well, I think that that's the, um, I think that's probably what makes your art, like, work and is good, is if you have put all those, you have thought of all these details, but you, we, we know as artists, the, the audience is not going to know all of those details, yeah. but it's important that we do. Mm-hmm. And then I think it comes out more... Uh, I can't think of a better word than organic (laughs) comes out more organic or comes out more genuine or something or sincere. Sincere is maybe a better word when you're watching, like listening to that song or like looking at the uh, painting or you're watching the movie. If it comes out as like, Oh, this artist knew what they were doing and they were inspired. And I can tell that there's something genuine, sincere here, even though as a viewer, as a fan, as a listener, I don't know all the, everything that went into it, but it's important that, you do as the artist i think yeah and probably if something was overlooked that might be more easily identified than if it's sort of this seamless cohesive that's true yeah you can point out well you can point out when there's a like a a really shitty like amateur movie that you know maybe like a student film or something and it's just it's just all over the place it's just messy and, Mm -hmm. and none of it makes sense and you watch and you go oh yeah this isn't this isn't good and everyone knows it's not good but you might even not be able to pinpoint exactly why or what went wrong. Mm-hmm. But but also that comes with experience too. There's like a lot of all feeling, my first I guess. Terrible, but yeah, you know, it's just 
part of being an artist. You got to make some bad stuff and then you make some good stuff eventually. That's how we grow. <laughs> yeah. And we're also all from small town Nova Scotia or small mm-hmm. towns. And so how did that kind of upbringing or exposure or in our case, lack thereof to the arts mm-hmm. encourage you to pursue this life? Um, I didn't ever want to fit in. I don't remember ever wanting to fit in. Like I have this memory of being in, in junior high, maybe when I was really young, I probably did. But I remember being in junior high and high school and I just had this feeling that I didn't want to be in because <laughs> I grew up in Yarmouth, Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, South Shore of Nova Scotia. I just feel like I was like, I don't want to be here. I don't like nobody's weird. <laughs> like everyone was so boring. Everyone was just like, I'm into sports or I'm into everyone seemed to be in the into the same stuff. And I was just like so craving anything else, any other culture, any other point of view. And I from an early age was like, I cannot wait to get out of this town. And and I don't want to bash Yarmouth, like it's not a terrible place at all. But for me, I was like, I wanted to get out and see weirdos and see what artists were doing. And and I didn't know. I, I didn't know I would end up in film. I the only thing I knew is that I wanted to be a rock star. That was my only plan. I'm like, I'm going to be a musician and a rock star. This I know. This is the only <laughs> thing I have planned for my life. And I didn't have any talent and didn't know how to play an instrument. I couldn't sing. <laughs> I couldn't like dance. I couldn't. So I had no talent, but I was like, somehow this will work. Well, tell us about uh, how you got into the music industry. And I know you're a drummer with the Super yeah, Fantastics. I, I would, I, I definitely would wish that I was a drummer. Like that's what my favorite, that's what my dream job would be if I was playing drums in a band. So film is definitely second this is your side list. gig my film making side gig <laughs> but yeah. i actually wish i was a stand-up comedian that i i think would be my ultimate but i've never done stand-up i don't think i ever will dare to try because i love stand-up so much as an art form my second favorite art form is music and then third you know down right way down the list would be film but yeah i i, I did start playing drums um when I first moved to Halifax, I moved here in 2005, I think, and I still had the idea of being in a band. Still didn't know how to play an instrument. So I um I we I had a mutual friend Matt McDonald and I mentioned that I wanted to learn how to play drums. He knew how, so he's like, "I'll teach you." And he like just he would bring his guitar and I we would rent a jam space. Excuse me. I would he would bring his guitar and I would just sit on the drums and he would be like, okay, like he would teach me the simple drum beats while he was strumming along with the guitar. And that was how we, that's how he taught me. So it was drum lessons. And then we we're like, kind of wrote songs in our sessions. And then we, we called ourselves the Super Fantastics and we we're like, we have a band now. How cute. <laughs> You're like, I realized my dream. Yeah. I'm a rock star now. It really was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty like low I don't want to say it was a low bar, but I was like, oh, that that that's all. I made it. I never had to actually like make money. I yeah. was just like the fact that I was technically in a quote unquote band. I was like, there we go. I made it. I'm a rock star. Do you remember <laughs> the first show really you ever pay- played? Yeah. Uh, Reflections. Is that still a bar? Reflections? I, I think you it is. I believe so. Yeah. yeah. They had a thing called Rockin' for Dollars. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. And and uh, there would be like this. It would be this wheel that you would turn. 
I think. And then the the band, the bands, like a lottery kind would of kind thing? of go on stage and play. You could win. You, you could this? win things. I never did it, but I I know I know yeah. a bunch of people did. And you could like win money, mic. and you could. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know the exact concept because I was never there for yeah. it. Like, and I, I have a spin it to see like if memory. you actually get to go play. Or I can't something. remember if you spin it to go play or if you just played and then you spin to see if you've won. And like, yeah, I think that was the idea. Like they would have like a couple hundred dollars to spend on a band for the night, but instead of just hiring one band they would get a bunch of people to come and one person would win that mm, the clever other way would just be playing i think that was how it went um and that was the first time we played that's such an artist way to get paid like <laughs> yeah. maybe you will i've got this money but you have to spin this wheel yeah you it have was, to play first it was fun because anyone could play so this was almost like an open mic in the sense that like yeah you could suck you could it, it was our first time playing in front of people that's what we did we played rocking for dollars and uh yeah, it was great. It was so fun. I've just now, yeah, no, not a lot of things make me happier than playing drums in front of people. And you've toured and you've released yeah, albums and got critical acclaim. So. Yeah, we did. We played very small venues. We certainly didn't get to a place where we were. This was not our full time job at any point, so we never got to that level of success. But we did get to tour a little bit and like make enough money on the road to sort of like pay the. The gas money and you know like that gas sort of thing. And Tim Hortons, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like the cheap hotel rooms that yeah. you would get along the way. Um, so that's yeah. So we never played big stadiums. We never played any of the big, you know, nothing like that. We didn't like win any CMAs or anything. But we had fun, and I still think about it as like, oh but that's my god, I wish I was still in that band. Yeah, that's impressive to have moved here in two thousand five with like I have this dream i don't know how to play a single note but and then you ended up touring so yeah i know i do think about it i'm like that was cool that was cool and i think it's i I don't know if this is bad advice but (laughs) i always feel like it's good to have really low expectations (laughs) because i'm like i have low expectations so anything exceeded the expectations was exciting is there a link between playing music and making movies well, uh, in the Super Fantastics, I wasn't the songwriter. So, but I do know of a few directors that are also drummers. So I kind of wonder if there's something, because if you're the director, you're not usually, like I think actors often are, if you're also a musician, you're a lead singer, right? Because yeah, you're yeah. the front and the center and the spotlight's on you. And then drummers and directors are making a lot of creative decisions, but you're not really front and center. Interesting. So maybe there's that. Backbone of it all. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the backbone of it all. Yeah. But directors are definitely kind of like the boss. And I wouldn't say drummers are the Mm. boss of a band. But but I don't know. I don't know if there's a connection there. But... um, do you see yeah. yourself more of a of a storyteller or does the role of a director have more to do with I want to be in control of the situation? I have big control issues. Like I would say my life, my most of my problems in my life are based around the fact that I'm a control freak. Mm. So I have like a lot of anxiety and that anxiety 
tends to come from places where I don't feel in control. So I have a lot of health anxiety where I feel like, oh no, my heart is being weird right now. Am I having a stroke? Oh my God. And then my I my I kind of exaggerate my problems in my brain because like my hand's slightly numb. Okay, no, something's wrong with me. I'm having a stroke or I'm going to have a heart attack. And then I can't control those things. Like, yeah. you know, like we can't control what our health is doing and what happens to us. So then I suddenly feel out of control and I will spiral. So I don't, like to put myself into situations where I don't have control. So I think that is why I've veered towards being a director. Yeah, that's I really fair. do have so much control over I make I'm making so many decisions like producers technically have more control in a way, but the director has more creative control. Um I don't remember what you asked me. Oh, storyteller versus director. Um so I think I don't no, storytelling definitely is a control thing because I'm sitting on a computer and I'm going, I'm going to make up these characters. I'm going to make them do whatever I want. Like, I mean, you are playing God <laughs> making these stories happen. And I'm like, I'm going to kill this person and I'm going to do this and yeah. I'm going to make these people have sex. And I'm going to you're just making up a whole world and a whole story. So it's it's very much feeds my control thing. Yeah, they're kind of one in the same then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're like, can both be about control? Yeah. <laughs> I know. And it's it's actually a problem. Like I'm if I am working in a situation where I am not the boss, it's really hard for me. Mm -hmm. And that's not good. I don't want that to be the case. So I'm working on it. I have I have two therapists right now. I, I like to have a backup therapist. <laughs> so I have two. So I see them both once a month. So twice a month I'm in therapy. And then me and my partner have couples therapy once a month. So Three times a month, at least, I'm in. Are you some talking sort about the same subject matter, or are they specializing in different areas of your life? Technically, I think they're different subjects, but it really all comes down to control. I can mm. tell that the common theme in all the problems is that I want control in situations, and then when I don't have it, anxiety, insecurity, all that stuff. So. It's what bittersweet I like, sometimes. Go ahead. I was going to say, what I would like is to wake up tomorrow and be the type of person that doesn't need control. That okay. sounds like an amazing life to me. Well, and, and I was going to say, because it kind of feeds directly into that, it's bittersweet sometimes as artists because like Mike and I are pretty guilty too of overworking to a point where you kind of completely miss the joy in the creativity or the process, the fun. However, that character trait is also what makes you prolific and wins you awards because you're caught up in details and perfectionism and like so these things while challenging and a detriment often to our health or our mental mm -hmm. health <laughs> yeah, also seem to sometimes at least be the things that garner you some level of success so I imagine having control at times is the same and like well if I let go of this then what? Then what does my product look like? So it's hard to let your brain go there. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I, yeah, I know you guys did an episode about success, which I thought was really interesting because I've been I think a lot about success and I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. I have a very weird relationship with uh, ex, uh, external validation and external praise something I'm working in therapy with like I'm working on this in therapy right now and just had like a really juicy mm. session with my therapist last week about this because I was like so I won these awards and I had this was like the day or two after I had just won the the women in film 
Directing Award and the Screen Nova Scotia Award for Best uh, Best Feature Film for Night Blooms. Yeah, you did. And I was like talking to him about it and I was like, he's like, so what would you like my help with today? Which is like what he asks me because we, we usually focus on one emotion per session. And I'm like, guilt. And I'm like, I have so much guilt when I win things that let's work on that. And mm. it's an interesting thing because for me, I don't... I think a lot of us suffer from imposter syndrome. So there's always that. It's like, I'm not good enough. I don't really deserve this. Wait till they all find out I'm a phony, blah, blah, blah. So I think a lot of us have that voice in our head. And then for me personally, I also have this voice of like, I don't need external validation. And I don't do anything to try to win awards or to try to get compliments even. Like, I don't want to look on, I don't read reviews online. I don't care if people like the movie or not. And I'm so for, I'm so proud of that as a as one of my like traits that I'm really really proud of is that I don't make art for external validation. However, when I get external validation, I am so uncomfortable with it. Mm. Because and well, I was working on this in therapy and I I don't know if this is boring. You guys can cut all this out if you want. I love this stuff. But it's like, the reason why I was so uncomfortable winning those awards is because a little part of me liked it. And I was like, I don't want to be the type of person that likes awards. This is what I've been fighting against my whole life. Somewhat, I don't want to be the type of person that wants external validation. And that's, I'm really proud of that. Mm. So a little part of me was like, oh, I ha- I'm glad I I like I won those awards. It made me feel good. And then I was like, "Who the hell are you? Someone who feels good from awards? That's not that's not who we raised." Mm. And then right. immediately I felt shame and guilt, and I couldn't Sh- shake that shame about feeling good about having won. Yeah, yeah. Shame about feeling a little mm. bit good, mm-hmm. and it was only a little bit good. It wasn't even that good. Like I didn't like go home and like cry tears of joy and i didn't like call all my friends to tell them i won like yeah. i was just like this feels nice yeah but just that amount of this feels nice made me feel shame because i was like no 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 no, no. steph that's not who you are you're not the kind of person that likes awards you're the type of person that's like fuck awards right you know because if i'm the type of person that says fuck awards i don't need your validation and i have all the control mm-hmm. and as soon as i like something and as soon as someone makes me feel good Oh, that person has a little control. Mm-hmm. And I'm not how comfortable would, with that. How would you feel though if you didn't win those awards? If you if you lost them, like Good. Uh, you would you would? Yep, because yeah. I have not won many awards yeah. in my life. And I always feel I always feel pretty good when I get nominated. Yeah. And I go, "Oh, that feels nice." Okay, yeah. so someone is kind of taking me seriously in the industry. I'm I'm like respected amongst my peers and that's something that feels good um, and then I will often not win the things I'm nominated for and I feel totally fine mm-hmm. and I'll sit there and I'll clap for the person that won and I'm not I'm not faking it I'm not faking a smile and then secretly down deep down being like fuck like I really threw that's out my I whole do. body <laughs> <laughs> how in the hell did they win <laughs> oh, <laughs> well uh Again, the nomination is certainly a big thing because, oh, there's that recognition. Like, yeah. I'm doing something that is good enough in this industry I'm in to be recognized by other people. But I also, I'm pretty competitive. Like, just, that's, it's almost control and 
competitiveness can kind of be similar, I mm-hmm. think. Um, and I guess as you were talking about control, I'm like, yeah, I guess I am kind of a control freak in, in those ways. Not to say you're a control freak, but... No, I'm uh, self-proclaimed. Um, like, that's the word I use. So okay. you can say that about me. Okay. okay. I didn't know if I heard you say it specifically. <laughs> no, I did. Yeah, so, control freak. Um, but yeah, we just, uh, at the ECMAs, we were nominated for five awards. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm like, I just don't want to lose them all. It's like oh, <laughs> how I was going in. And I didn't write that album to, to try to win awards and don't mm-hmm. really care, but just... When you're nominated for that many, when you're essentially like leading the pack in nominations, right. and then we did lose them all, and I I felt horrible. Really, yeah. this just happened. Recently? Uh, yeah, like when the last six like, weeks ago, maybe? like right before we left for the artist residency, like the day before. This is so interesting. Um, and it Wait, was. What, what was this the first time you lost them all? And the other years you were nominated, you did win, or have you won and we've lost? We've been a bunch? pretty successful, but we've never had this many nominations either. So oh. um, we've won five before and lost. I don't know more than that, but it just felt like, oh yeah, we're we're leading the pack, or we're tied with another band mm-hmm. leading the pack in nominations. This is kind of, and we haven't won one in six or seven years okay and so I'm you're like, like this is it this yeah. is the boost i need and one of them was fan voting and like we we have really good fans and mm-hmm. i know they were voting like crazy and we would do funny videos as reminders and everyone's like we're voting daily for you from every device i'm like and we've never lost a fan voting award oh. like if there's one thing we're good at it's having good fans yeah <laughs> but uh, <laughs> But so, and I kind of like, I want to win that one for them. Like, cause they, yeah. people are taking time out of their day to mm-hmm. vote for us. And, uh, we, we lost the other four we were nominated for. And like that one came up and, uh, sure enough, we lost and it was to someone we never heard off to, which whatever, doesn't matter. But, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just sat there like, fuck. Like, I wanted to win that one for the people who spent the time helping us out. Yeah, I love that that you're being so honest about this. And uh, again, like, everyone who won the award, like, I was clapping and, like, Mm -hmm. they're great, too. Like, Mm -hmm. they're they're awesome. They deserve more than less kind of thing. But something just about my competitiveness, like, I wanted to win. Like, I... So when you say you're competitive, do you want to be the best or do you want to be one of the best? Uh, I, I guess both, uh, I, I guess, I guess I want to be just accepted and just, just recognized and be able to make my, the biggest thing is just to be able to make a comfortable living, just cre- yeah. creating. That is the and, b- good thing about awards, as we would all know. Like, if you can put that on your bi- in your bio, your resume, someone else will fund you. Yeah. And that, yeah. we need that funding to yeah. make living as an artist. Like, that is the best part. Yeah, yeah. that's the cool of reality of, of any type of external recognition or validation is, yes, there's an emotion attached to that from us personally. If I get that award or nomination or... You know, it it means getting a grant. It means Mm -hmm. continuing your career in some cases or to some extent. I mean, it's not as though your entire life is hinging on winning the CCMA. But if you get it, you're probably going to get a media interview. You're probably going to get, you know, some other type of opportunity will be a spinoff from that. And 
So it it matters from your business perspective. Your mm -hmm. personal perspective maybe is at odds with that sometimes. And for me, they're all merged together because I don't have another job. So winning those awards helps me pay for a mortgage, right? So that's, that's just another, again, I don't need the validation like, oh my God, I won rock album of the year. Like who really cares at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. but it just kind of brings you up and up the more those things happen, I guess. But does that bother you that you can't control, like this is the control part for me. So you're sitting in that room being like, oh, please, 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 you know. Fingers crossed. Please win one of these awards at least because you're so you might. I don't know if it's going through your head, but you might be thinking what they say. If they announce my name on my album right now, that will probably mean I'll have a, more of a revenue financial income for the next year. Like that's directly attached to your job, to you making a living. Mm-hmm. And if they don't say my name, well, maybe I'll still make a living, but maybe it'll be a little harder. So like. That's the control thing that bothers me. I don't want to be sitting in an audience looking at a stage and someone opens an envelope and they tell me what my financial career is going to be for the next year or they tell me if I'm good or not good as an artist. And that's why I think I I'm I'm like, I don't want to say I'm anti-awards because I'm like, I mean, I I dress up and I go to the thing. So obviously I want to be there. But like, that's what bothers me about it. I'm like, I don't want them to have that control over my life. Does that bother you? I I guess yeah I I I never assessed it down to the my personality to figure out what it is that I I like and don't like I I know when I win things I just feel better too like yeah. whatever if uh I still think of like sports games from like twenty years ago that I lost I'm like oh like every once in a while like something will remind me like oh if I did this we would have won the game like. My, I'm just oh, like, wow. So it actually feels like losing is a bigger deal to you than winning. Loser, losing is worse to you than winning is good to you. Maybe. I think maybe the, the reason why you want to win got so my much. Own therapy I feel session like she's here. really tapping yeah. into something here. Yes. Yeah, I don't like just losing. just going to let you guys roll with <laughs> yeah. this because he needs these to are hear the type of conversations <laughs> I have with everybody, everyone in my life. I'm like, if you're not willing to talk about this deep stuff, this is, this is no, where this I go. Is great. But it's you really obviously don't have to because I don't know you that well. But um, you're good. But that's my guess. My guess is that you. The the why winning feels so good for you is because that's not losing. It's the opposite yeah, of losing. Maybe. And the losing is what you're trying to avoid more than the winning. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Um I, I definitely don't like losing. Um not that I have like this long history of losses that propelled me to, to be like that, but I think I think most people don't like to lose things. <laughs> um and I'm sure I have some moment when I was two years old where I didn't get something I wanted and now I'm mm-hmm. frig for life. Because it all comes down to the love of our parents. We all yeah. want to win the love of our parents. So you can always you can always trace back. And to I that. lost that when I was a little boy. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been looking to regain it ever since. And yeah. maybe someday I'll have enough awards. My parents yeah, will yeah. love me. If I just get... Enough 15 ECMAs. Music Nova Scotia Awards. <laughs> I need four more to get my dad's love. Yeah. I mean, it is ridiculous that we can laugh about it. But it is weird that deep down when we're actually, our brains are forming, these are the things that make us driven or whatever as adults. It's like so fucked up and weird, but 
and it's, it's, it's vulnerable it enough to be to live this creative life like we're already by claiming to pursue a life as an artist that I'm doing things a little bit different. I'm a little bit different. My interests, my expression, my identity, all these things are at, at the very least a little bit outside of the norm. So you're already kind of setting yourself up for that. Mm -hmm. So things like awards are like that little bit of maybe celebration that a boss could give you like employee of the month or good mm -hmm. job on this working paper or whatever your job is. But we're our own kind of world sometimes. So yeah. to have someone else recognize that mm -hmm. can be can yeah. represent that too. Like, yes, there's winning and losing, but there's also a little bit of just general human need for recognition and yeah. like this is my whole life, my whole job. Mm -hmm. And nobody really says much about it except for me. And like, yeah, my maybe my mom or dad will say, cool. Yeah. Cool well, the grown mountain ups, painting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the grown-ups told us we're good enough, you know. Yeah. And we want to be good enough. Yeah. yeah it, it's a pretty, like, basic need, I guess, of, like, wanting to feel worthy. Worthy you, of love or worthy of Do you feel like you've, you've, we used the word made it in that episode you mm -hmm. referenced. It was sort of this conversation so on us asking ourselves. And, like, so I know you're saying, like, I, I don't necessarily know what that represents to me but is there a feeling that you have had or want to have that would satisfy that idea of making it I think um I wasn't joking earlier when I said I have low expectations and I think because I had such low expectations from a very young age that I feel like I've made it just the fact that I left Yarmouth I didn't yet pregnant in high school I didn't have to stay in my hometown and uh you know go on you know, like either go on welfare or go on like some sort of like the fact that I uh left my town and did anything made me feel like I made it mm -hmm. so like I went to community college and went to radio and television broadcasting, and then from there got an internship at CBC Television and started as a casual employee for CBC. And I was just like, oh, I have made it. Yeah. Like, and... That's huge. And that's... Yeah, and coming from, like, I didn't know anyone who worked in TV. I didn't know anyone who worked in music. I didn't know anyone who worked in comedy. I didn't work, know anyone who worked in any creative field. So the idea of like moving to the big city of Halifax, and not that big, but for me, Yarmouth, it feels like the big city. Yeah. So it'd be like moving to the city and getting my own job at a place in a TV station seemed crazy. Yeah. It just seemed like so unbelievable that I would ever hit that level of quote unquote success. Now I was not, you know, it's not like I was making, I didn't even have a full-time job then. So it's not like I was making like a lot of money or anything. It was just, I was a casual employee and that made me feel like I've made it. So I feel like I've made it when I was 21 and I got that job. Mm -hmm. So ever since it's, I've always continued to make it. Do you and still have that job? Any, I still work at CBC as a casual. Yeah. yeah. So I do some shooting even though i haven't shot, shot in a while because my i'm getting older and my back hurts so now instead i will do editing so i edit for the news mm -hmm. and i also do some technician uh stuff for the radio side and um i love it there and it's like a cool i kind of consider it a day job but i've been doing more and more film stuff the last couple of years so i've been 
kind of not doing as much CBC stuff, but I'm kind of always keep it as like a side gig. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite a side gig. It's a great gig. side gig. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like it. But so I guess to answer your question about do I feel like I've made it? Yeah, I feel like I've made it from from like from day one. I've I've made it. Was Night Blooms a tribute to the place that you came from? Yeah, so Night Blooms is uh yeah, the f- the feature film that I released and it's uh, we don't say it takes place in Yarmouth, but I was writing it in a Yarmouth mm-hmm. kind of town. Um and it takes place in the 90s because I was a teenage girl in the 90s and I was like I don't know how teenagers act now. So I wasn't even going to attempt mm-hmm. to write anything about a modern day teenager. Yeah, that's so, a whole other research project. Yeah. <laughs> so I just wrote a me as a teenager. This is how we talk and this is how we acted and and um and the the story i mean it's a it's a gritty coming of age story about teenage girls in the 90s but you know the big catalyst that happens is our protagonist is you know 17 year old girl and she develops a crush on her friend's father and tries to seduce him and start an affair with him and he's not interested but then he kind of is and and it's very mucky and gray area and now i'm just kind of going into what the movie's about less about your question about it being like yarmouth we need some background yeah yeah there's some context (laughs) But for those listening who want to want to see the movie um that is what what it is about um and it's so and also like that's a kind of relationship that would have been a little bit more accepted in the 90s than now a teenage girl and a guy and a man in her in his 40s um but I was recently talking about this to to a colleague of mine who he was like, "Why did you tell this story?" And I was like, "Good question." But I I have been, I've been like struggling with the the like the dichotomy of like modern being a modern day feminist as I am, and like the teenage version of me, because when I was a teenager, I was having consensual relationships with men in their 20s 30s 40s mm-hmm. so i was having consensual relationships with much older men like through my most of my life i was so i was thinking like when the me too movement happened and i was thinking back i was like now it would be so easy for me to be like yeah when i was a 16 year old i was sleeping with a 40 year old and it would be so easy for me to just say oh he took advantage of me because like everybody would believe me if i said that now yeah, yeah. but that wasn't what happened I actually pursued him and, and actually there's a couple different relationships I had older, but they were all ones that like, they didn't take, I was not a victim and they were not a predator. And I don't know how to like marry that truth of my own history with the modern day. I actually am a feminist and I think women, young women are taken advantage of and victimized like a lot. And there are a lot of older men that are predators and I do not think 40 year olds should be sleeping with teenage girls. Like, I really do believe that now, but my own history has like a different version of what I was as a teenager. And I was like, I don't know. I feel very uncomfortable with these two sides of me, who I was and who I am. And anyway, that's why I wrote the script. Today's episode is sponsored by Erin Bulger Photography. Erin has considered photography a portal to her memory since she started sifting through old albums as a child on her parents' living room floor. Erin believes that when you look back on your pictures decades from now, you should be hit in the face with a rush of emotion to instantly be transported back in time and feel everything again. Her images create that kind of magic. 
She recognizes that no two couples are ever the same and refuses to approach any session in a robotic way. She cares about your memories as fiercely as if they were her own. We have had the honor of working with Erin on a number of occasions and can't express our love and gratitude for both her work and how she shows up to deliver her product. Follow Erin at Erin Bulger on Instagram. But the film strikes that balance, in my opinion. I I don't know if that's exactly the sweet spot you were going for, but it it feels like the audience is left to make up their own minds about how they feel about this story that's presented. Or like when I when I left the theater, it was kind of, you know, I was there with a girlfriend of mine and we had this conversation on the way home about like, how do you feel now? Like, how did the how do you deter like? Because it wasn't kind of this in your face, this is exactly, I, I, I didn't feel like the film told you what you were supposed to leave with, mm, which that's good. was kind of uncomfortable, if I'm being honest, because film often does do exactly that. Like some films you can, and, and I like these films too, that you watch five minutes of it and you know exactly what the next two hours is going to mm-hmm. be. There's something that you're more at ease about in those stories. Like this is familiar to me, so it can kind of be background or it serves this particular purpose. But that film we left like, okay, I need to talk this out before I go home by myself. I love that. So, and and I don't know that there is necessarily a right or wrong takeaway or Mm -hmm. correct takeaway from it, just that it leaves you... In conversation, so that's, that's what I liked about it. And, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, that was certainly my intention. Of it's a weird goal to have, but my goal was to make people uncomfortable. Yeah, but <laughs> and it's... be like, I don't know, I don't know why, I don't know why I'm such a weirdo that I want other people to feel uncomfortable. <laughs> but like, I guess because I was struggling with that uncomfortable feeling in my mm. own brain and in my own heart, and like dealing with my own past and things that were right or wrong or how things are seen now versus how things were seen then. So I was struggling with it. So I guess I took that uncomfortable, gritty, weird, gray area thing mm-hmm. and I put that onto a page and then that page turned into a movie. So I'm glad that after all those years it took to make the thing, you saw it and you still felt that that uncomfortableness was in it, which makes me feel good because I'm like, that's where I was coming from when I was right. writing. So I guess it mm, it has cool. translated in, in a way. Yeah. It's hard to make art like that, too, because you going back to this conversation about I need to make a living off this. And we talked about this in the interview I did when I made the painting uh, inspired by your responses is that you're faced with this challenge as an artist in what's authentic to me? What story do I want to tell? What image do I want to represent? versus is somebody going to like this or buy it because I still need to Mm -hmm. sell this painting and buy my groceries but you then are faced with this problem of like but if somebody leaves this show and they're uncomfortable does that mean they disliked it and is that somehow going to impact my stability or my income or all these questions yeah that's interesting no one's asked me that question yet um that was a thought when I so I don't know how many, six years ago, maybe I had a version of this script in my head. So, you know, it's been a few years, but I do remember um, writing with the intention, knowing that this was the topic I was going to cover. I was like, well, this is going to be controversial. That's that's what mm-hmm. I want. If if I want to write a story where an older man's taking advantage of a younger woman and he's a villain and she's, she's a victim, that's not controversial. That's a story we can yeah. all easily understand and get we know who the villain is, right? So I'm like, I want to write a version that's controversial. 
where hopefully you don't completely hate this guy and maybe can even understand a little bit of like why he's made some of those decisions. And But you don't completely hate her either. She's not a devil. She's just a stupid kid, right? So yeah, I knew I was going to make something controversial and I wanted to go in with the intention of like, I can't be afraid. So I am totally okay with my career being ruined after the script. Wow. And that was, that like, I couldn't write the script if I wasn't okay with that. And maybe this is like imposter syndrome or low self-esteem. I don't know what this says about me, but I didn't think I had much of a career to ruin anyway. I'm like, like, I haven't really made a lot of money off of film yet. So I could try to go the route of like, let's make something that someone will buy and then I can pay my, my rent. Or uh, instead, I'm going to make something weird that maybe this will be the end like oh steph would have been a great filmmaker if she hadn't made that weird film that everyone hated and now she's canceled right like and you were good with that i was like, good with that yeah that sounds I couldn't write very it. liberating it is to approach something a and project. guess what who has all the control in that situation old steph yeah <laughs> <laughs> but, but look at some of the the best directors in history look at quentin tarantino do you think yeah. like yeah he's not afraid of yeah he goes for Anything he wants to go for. Yeah, I respect like, that. In his last movie, a woman gets her head bashed in on a fireplace. Like yeah. that, that's a a bold thing <laughs> to do. Like it, not many people could pull that off and yeah. think it's a masterpiece. But yeah. I really respect artists that do whatever the hell they want. Yeah. Like I have, so, I really like Kanye West, mm-hmm. and. He says stuff that I don't necessarily agree with all the time, but I have so much respect for that guy because I'm like, he just really doesn't give a fuck, does he? He shows up and he makes whatever the hell he wants and he's like, cancel me, I don't care. And I'm just like, fuck, that's cool. Like, uh, that's I wonder why it's cool. so, like we were talking earlier before we started recording about being Nova Scotian and being so nice all the time and this is sort of how we were raised and these expectations and so on, yet... We have this admiration for people who don't behave the way yeah. that we do or think we're supposed to. And isn't it interesting that it's so hard to just let ourselves be the people that we look up to in these ways? Yeah, I know. That is that's true. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's why I, I admire those people is because I'm like, oh, they're not doing the thing that we were taught, yeah. especially as Canadians, especially as for you and I, especially as women, especially on the East Coast of Canada, like be polite, be likable. Heaven forbid there's a girl who's not likable. You'll never make it in any industry if you're not likable and nice mm-hmm. and sweet and don't talk too loud and don't. And we have we were, to, we were told over and over and over again. By example, we're told over and over again that if you don't follow those things, especially as a woman, you will be, you know. Nobody will accept you. You won't have a career. You will be laughed at. You'll be made fun of or worse. And so, yeah, I guess there's like a little part of me that's just like the punk rock version, the punk rock part of me that is so like anti-rules, anti-authority, wants to be like, oh, is that what you want me to be? I want to be the exact opposite. Like yeah. I I was obsessed with Courtney Love. That was my, that Courtney Love was my hero when yeah. I was a kid. And that, I had pictures of her on my wall as a 13. I was a 13 year old girl. I had pictures of Courtney Love. And my parents were like, is, are you OK? <laughs> you know, because they're like, that's not a great role model. I'm worried about but that is. And I think back, I'm like, why was that my role model? Because that was the opposite of she was doing exactly breaking all the rules of what you say a woman should be in this world. And she's just like, fuck you. I'm going to do what I want. And I'm like, fuck, that's cool. And when we were little girls, 
rock stars, especially female rock stars, were mm-hmm. one of our only examples of women that were breaking the rules. You weren't yet really seeing politicians do that or, mm-hmm. you know, other more corporate female figures. And there's still there's still room to grow there. That's a separate <laughs> conversation. But they those artists really were the the representatives, the symbols that we had as young girls of of just something different, even just, not yeah. even deviant, just something other than we're in a small town. Yeah, it's in the 80s and 90s. Like you say, we're taught to be rule followers by our parents, by our leaders, by all of these career women that we're supposed to aspire to be mm-hmm. and there's just yeah these handful of kind of punk rock like grunge yeah. era artists <laughs> that thank god for them at least gave us a glimpse into okay i might not be a, a musician but at least i have some kind of example of an other version of where my life could take me mm-hmm. yeah that is so true yep did you have young role models? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Between musicians and athletes, I had yeah. like Michael Jordan posters, Nirvana posters. It was like grunge <laughs> rock and basketball <laughs> and <NBA>. players. <laughs> but I, 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 it's very different, like in, in lots of ways. But I think the, the mindset in all the people who accomplish those great things is, is very similar. Mm. Like, we watched the the last dance about Michael Jordan. Did you watch that? No. It's uh, it's it's interesting. You don't even really have to be a basketball fan to appreciate it. But afterwards, like it, the whole series is basically showing how amazing Michael Jordan really was and how insanely dedicated he is. And afterwards, I'm like, I would not want to hang out with that guy just because he's so intense. Yeah. Like he wouldn't be a fun time. Yeah, laid he's, back kind of guy, maybe. But he's talking about control like mm. he developed into the greatest athlete of all time because of control i guess like he he wanted his teammates to play a certain way to do certain things and if they didn't he would let them know <laughs> or punch them in the face like um and like the attitude that he had and maybe someone like kurt cobain are probably different in a number of ways but it just this desire to do things the way you want to do it is is mm-hmm. there and and to break do something that people tell you you can't do yeah it's like it's such a high yeah, when, do you defy the, the the stereotypes i guess the the, the normality mm-hmm. and but yeah I, I definitely had grunge rock posters and mm-hmm. and did you win awards when you were a kid like in sports uh, and stuff? I'm still on She's like, yeah. we just haven't quite finished well, this. <laughs> <laughs> Find it interesting. I, I did uh, after... One... I played sports when I was young. And it's it's kind of funny. Like when you're young, you just, you just show up and this is who I am. And however good I am is just determined just because of who I am. Mm-hmm. And, and I wasn't really very good at anything. I was okay. Like I've father's an athletic person and okay i'm big i guess so i but i wasn't great at anything and then i realized oh if i put time into this and practice that makes me better mm. so uh when i started playing basketball when i was young and then that's when i clued into this practice thing and i would just play for four or five hours a day just out on my own just taking shots mm-hmm. trying to get better and then all of a sudden i i was pretty good and 
did win awards, I guess. Oh. Uh-huh. So you have an immediate, you learn from a young age, if I put more time in, then I'll get more accolades. Probably why you have a good work ethic now. Yeah, I guess it, yeah. it definitely is part of it. My brother was really into sports. So my yeah. bro- I was raised by a single dad most of my life. Yeah. And a brother who's two years younger than me. So I was in this house with boys and my br- brother was really into sports and my dad was really into sports and I did not have an interest in sports at all. Yeah. And I used to joke that if I had, my brother's name is Justin. And I used to joke that if I had ever written an autobi- autobiography that it would be called, I didn't know Justin had a sister <laughs> because I was just ignored and forgotten about. It was just like my brother was so good at hockey, especially. And then he was like the local star and the captain of the yeah. hockey mm-hmm. team and mm-hmm. winning all the things and all the girls wanted to date him, right? He was the star. And then I was just so average. I mean, I wasn't like the dumbest kid in school. I was not ever getting straight A's. I was just like average, average, average in every way possible. So easy to forget. And I think that from that, I I learned oh, you're not getting the accolades. You're not the one getting, and I don't remember ever being like uh, jealous or anything of my brother because I was like, oh, he's doing something that he's good at and that's great. But I I learned early on like, oh, you are not going to get, like you can't depend on exterior validation, compliments, awards, people telling you you're great. Like none of that's going to come for you. So if you're going to make it in this life, you got to get high off other things. And so... I think for me, it was just like, I think that's why I have this weird feeling with awards now, especially because these two awards recently came into my mm-hmm. into my life. So I'm really thinking about that right now is like I have worked so hard to be the person who doesn't want the awards or the validation or the accolades that when they come, it's like, I don't know how to deal with that. Anyway, it's very strange. They're- is likely going to be more of that in your life to come, though. <laughs> I felt like I, I, I won an award a couple months ago, and I was on a Zoom. So it was a Zoom. It was a Canadian Screen Awards. And I was on the Zoom. And so, like, the five of us, everyone nominated in this category, were, like, we didn't know who won yet. So they were really going to do, like, this live, online live thing Mm -hmm. so the five of us were like in the quote-unquote waiting room in zoom and then when they announced the winner they were just going to bring one of our cameras up Uh and that person just really finds out in that moment if they won and then you give a quick speech and then they go to the next zoom because it was all a zoom award show and uh i was in the waiting room and i remember being like really annoyed because i was like i'm not gonna win this thing and now i gotta be hanging out on zoom for an hour waiting in this quote-unquote waiting room i gotta put makeup on i guess and i was like annoyed by this whole thing because i'm like i'm not gonna win why am i even here put all my makeup on doing my thing sitting around waiting and i could so i can see the other images the other people in the waiting room and i was like oh they like they're some of them had their friends with them and stuff and i and i was just like hanging out in my house alone and i didn't even tell anyone it was happening my dad's like what happened i'm like never mind um but i felt bad they i won and they called my thing up and the guilt like they pushed they my video came up and i did a really quick thing and of course i i was just like oh it was an easy job everyone i worked with was great that's why i want you know mm. I, I don't even take any credit for it i said everyone was great thanks so much And I immediately closed my laptop. Like, I didn't want to look any of those other people in the eye because I felt so bad that they didn't win. Mm. And because I was thinking, I am fine not winning. 
but I think they really wanted it. And I don't know, I'm projecting, I don't know these people, but I was worried that they really wanted the award. And I was like, I can handle not winning, but I don't know if they can because I don't know them. And I just had this guilt of like, shit, why was I the one that won? And it's Hmm. like a weird, heavy thing Hmm. to like carry with you of like, why does that feel so bad? Do you feel that you are deserving? Oh, that's that's a tough question because I think that like anyone is deserving and no one's deserving. Yeah, like that makes sense. Like, I, I get that because the people that are deciding are people just like us. Yeah, there's people on a jury, and we look at art and go. I like this one best. I like that one best. Mm-hmm. It's just all, all our opinions. So someone probably thought I deserve to win because I got the award. Maybe some people thought I didn't deserve to win. I don't, I don't know. I it's don't hard know. to, like with that approach, it's hard to decipher a good and a bad experience, really, because I know we're talking about awards a lot, but it's such a good metaphor for a career really spent in the arts in that if I... If I don't win, it doesn't matter. Like, this doesn't determine who I am. This doesn't define me. Mm -hmm. Yet, if you win, there's a lot of celebration and, like, Mm. you deserve this and good for you. And, like, the narrative completely changes with the exact same set of people, depending on what the outcome is. So we're we're kind of, like, (laughs) I don't know, accepted either way, which is great. But And maybe it's more about our support network that's, like, just telling you these words of encouragement or comfort, depending on the outcome. But I know you went through that after the ECMA. It's like a flood of people, like, ah, Well, it's funny. The next day I made a post, and it was kind of funny. Like, we shit the bed and went over five or something, and... I said sorry to all of the people who voted. Like we know how dedicated you were, and and that post got like, and again you can't rate anything on how many likes you get or something. But there was like over a thousand likes on Facebook, which is a fair bit for an indie band, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I'm like that's more likes on that post than probably if we won any of the awards. Oh, and like hundreds of comments, like. Either you deserved it or... Uh, right, like, or like, the hell with those... Yeah, It doesn't exactly. matter. Yeah. yeah. Oh, how yeah. did that... I mean, that's another topic that we could talk about. Social media validation. Yeah. Like, that yeah. is... I think that is very, very bad for my mental health. I've been... I've been... Oh, great. Yeah. In social media, and I really like it, because I think it's fun to be on social media. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you start comparing how many likes you're getting to someone else yeah. or how many likes you got on this picture versus the last picture you posted, like, oh, boy, yeah, that's, it's really not, icky. that's not healthy. I, I really struggle with that because I, especially nowadays, if we're talking about marketing and advertising, there are only so many options that people are paying attention to. Social media is probably the number one, mm-hmm. especially in visual arts. Like I'm putting pictures of paintings up there's very little you know i'm not getting played on the radio for example or like other avenues of of exposure so but yeah it 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 can really dictate your your mood and your day or like okay this got really low engagement people don't i.e people don't like this yeah that's not necessarily true but it's a yeah it's a total head game it's I so hate weird. it for that reason, yeah, but you? it feels like a necessary evil as a small business owner. Yeah, you can't just quit it completely. Then how's anyone going to know mm. what you're working on and buy your stuff? Or like, if oh, I wasn't frustrating in the arts, I think I would get rid of it. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Like mm. I, I'm like I have fun making 
funny videos and maybe I would keep doing that, but, uh, just, yeah, the, the comparison and just exactly what Kristen's describing. Like you, you put something up that doesn't do well and you're, you feel you don't get that validation, I guess it Mm -hmm. comes down to it. And it's such an immediate high too. I mean, they've designed it that way. We don't have a chance. Yeah. Yeah. Like the algorithm is is not. (laughs) Like, we don't have a chance. And it's just like, we get a high, we get a rush when you see those likes go up yeah. or the comments. Does social does that contribute to your anxiety at all? Is there a social media even factor into that? No, I don't feel anxiety. I feel a lot of anxiety most days. I, very rarely will a whole day go by where I don't feel anxious. Um, but I don't feel anxious about things that some people might expect that I would feel anxious about. So, mm-hmm. like, I do some public speaking. Sometimes I'll teach film classes I do things like this, like interview, like I don't Mm -hmm. feel uh, anxiety about any of those things, really. Um, And In fact, I kind of like that stuff, but uh, I feel anxious about dying. I always think I'm dying or my loved ones are going to die and I just can't stop thinking about it. And it's dark and it's bad. (laughs) It's bad. It's like a dark place for your mind to go. But but and I don't feel that anxious about social media because I'm like, if I lose a follower, gain a follower, get a, a you know a dm someone being an asshole insulting mm-hmm. me and i go eh, whatever or offering you five hundred dollars a day allowance if you'll hang out with them do you ever get those oh creepy... like these guys being like yeah i'll just pay you for i remember one one guy said um yeah i want to be like your sugar daddy i'll just pay yeah. you and i was like for what nudes and he's like no i'll just gonna give you money and you just tell me what you sh- what you spent the money on and i was like wait so you don't want nudes because like if you do i'll think about it like <laughs> i'm not even against selling nudes if how much money are you asking you're offering <laughs> yeah and he goes no, no no i don't even need nudes i was like okay you didn't have to turn them down that quick but okay uh, well what do you want then he's like just want to send you money and i was like okay like i immediately i was like sure I was like, I'm not like, going to give you my this personal yeah. information. I'm not going to give you my number. I'm not going to give you my address. I'm not going to give you my bank account information. But you want to send me money? I'll take it. E-transfers are pretty easy these days. Yeah. And I was like, I was talking to a friend. I was like, is there anything that actually could go wrong with this? And she's like, well, he could screen capture it and put it online. I'm like, yeah, that's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said yes to free money. Why is that I'm a bad okay thing? with this. <laughs> keep going down the list. And then, and, and I said yes, and he just didn't ever follow up. And I was like, oh, I'm glad I know how, around how this unfolds. This. Yeah, because you've had the offers and you probably did the smart ah, thing I like and to ignored mess it. With them sometimes, though, <laughs> like I've, I've seen a few friends that have posted like their conversations of, you know, messing around with these guys or whoever it is that yeah. owns these accounts. And it's quite yeah. funny. So I've yeah, yeah, I tried to have some fun once in a while, too. Really? And, yeah. But no one sent you. But yeah, money. so far, I'm still, no. still sure broke most from that. of them are scams of some sort, but there yeah. probably are some real people out there who. Take a Just liking want and to pay girls money, I guess. I imagine. I'm yeah. sure they would want something in return, though. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was saying. I was like, well, I'm not going to do any. Well, even in my case, I was like, well, maybe, depending on how much money I could send a nude. But yeah. I mean, I actually thought about starting an OnlyFans account once. And, and it's funny talking about anxiety. You would think that maybe I would have anxiety thinking about starting an OnlyFans because I would have nudes of myself floating around out there. That doesn't give me anxiety. That I'm happy to do. That I'll be like, so if someone wants to see me naked, no problem. I don't have like a shame thing about like be like a slut shaming thing. Like I'm not really, I don't feel that b- bad about sexuality and any of that stuff. I am so anxious that no one would sign up. 
And that's what my anxiety is. And I was just like, well, if I started an OnlyFans account, how embarrassing would it be if I got like one follower? <laughs> <laughs> do, do other people see how many followers you have? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was gonna say, who cares? I was gonna say the same thing. Like, yeah. ah, only you would know. But no, you can see. I guess it still doesn't you matter. And like, I talked about this to somebody, and they're like, "Oh, I'm sure a couple people would follow you." And I'm like, "Yeah, but like, if it was only like a couple, I'd feel like embarrassed that I have all these nudes ready to go, and no one wanted to." Look at them. <laughs> Just gotta so anyway, promote the hell out of it on yeah, social media. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I have thought ads. about that. But then I'm I'm 39 now, and I'm like, well, I'm gonna be 40 soon, and I kind of feel like that's gonna be the cutoff of like when anyone wants to see maybe nudes from me. That'll be like on your 40th <laughs> birthday, you launch that. Yeah, that page that could be the yeah. the shtick is like that I'm 40 to... now. Here, this is me naked before it all goes to totally. shit. Totally. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's your in. Yeah, I'll think <laughs> about it. I'll think about it. So we're the exact same age. I'm 39. Oh, cool. Kristen just had her her big day, her big 4-0. Mm-hmm. Oh, you did? But I did, yeah. Happy birthday. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank but, you. But um, I was going to say, uh, I recently wrote and recorded an album that's all about the 90s as well. Mm. Uh, and I created a storyline. It's a concept album. Like the story flows and chronological order as the songs take place and a lot of thought went into it mm-hmm. and i'm re- really proud of it it's it's the one that lost all those awards by oh, the way right. but the uh, one that was nominated for five awards <laughs> yeah, you mean. Yeah, yeah yeah um but i feel like at this point in my life as a 39 year old this certain amount of time has passed where i'm looking back at the 90s with this certain amount of nostalgia mm-hmm. and i feel like a lot of things I've been creating in the last couple of years have been with that lens. Like I'm really diving into the nostalgia off that time of my life. And even the book we're working on now is all about growing up in small towns and taking stories from growing up in that time period. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I could have done any of this like 10 years ago like because this i feel like this certain amount of time had to have passed to be able to look back at it in the with this reflective sense that you can really make sense of it and for you creating night blooms which is a tribute to the 90s in mm-hmm. a, in a certain way do you feel like a certain amount of time had to pass so you could look back and even in in this case look back at your 17 year old self mm-hmm. and compare to with who you are now like, is that something that just you could only do at this time in your life? Yeah, I think so. But maybe for me, it's more about the the confidence of, like, caring less about what people think. So I think that I don't know if that's exactly also maybe what you're talking about. But um, when you're when you're so close to something, well, I guess the nostalgia is you really have to have some time away from it for it to yeah. feel nostalgic or it's just the present and the present is always mm-hmm. dull. It's looking back on something is what makes it so that seem romantic, you yeah. know, in hindsight. Um, but yeah, so there's, I mean, there's also like there's distance be- because it has to be long enough for it, for people to go, oh yeah, remember we used to wear those pants? Because people go, yeah, that was two years ago. We, of course we remember. But um mm-hmm. But also, like, for me, I needed the space to get less embarrassed. Like, I, there was a time where I would have 
I didn't want any of my quote unquote new friends. My since my Halifax life has started, I didn't want them to know. Like I used to get high off of like gasoline and like uh, air freshener and homemade products. I don't know if you guys went through this, but you'd you'd be like, my cousin said he knew someone who once got high off. Duh, 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 and you would just go, let's try it. Right. And it would just get try to get high. TikTok of can offer all that information nowadays. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I probably would have been like looking online for that stuff, but this is pre-internet. And we used to just try to get high off of things we found in the house. Yeah. Just skip school and trying to or get high. Do the like cross your hands over your chest and somebody squeeze you really hard until you pass out. Oh and... yeah, I forgot about that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right? Like dives. these stupid things that we I feel like I don't want to say we all, but like I certainly did as a teenager. And and I used to be embarrassed about that. I used to be like, ooh, I hope nobody from those days remembers and, and tells my new friends or tells brings it up. Or, oh, I used to date these like older guys. I kind of don't really want my new friends to know that. And so it would be like this like secret thing that I felt embarrassed about, about my past. And so I came to a point, again, back to control, where I was like, wait, why am I afraid that I'm going to be outed? for being an idiot when I was a teenager. Why don't I just out myself? Yeah. And then I get the control back. Nobody can nobody can leak those nudes of me if I leak them first. Yeah. Right? Nobody can tell everybody these stupid things I done when if I just tell everyone and put it in put it in a movie. The movie's not, you know, hundred percent based on yeah. my life, but there's like a lot of this stupid stuff is in there. So like so I, I needed that to answer your question. I guess I needed that time away to come to the realization that like I'm going to take control over what my story is and what my history is or what my embarrassing things are. If I put them all out there, then there's no one that it's not, I'm not scared of it getting out there anymore. Mm-hmm. And did people relate to these things that you yeah, were trying really to hide? Surprised. Yeah. I, so many people have come up to, especially women like our age have been like, they'll, they'll be like, congratulations. And then they'll whisper in my ear. Yeah. I used to get high off that stuff too. Don't tell like my husband or whatever, <laughs> you know? And, yeah. and I go, Oh great. Like, this is so nice because I really thought I was the biggest idiot in the world and the only one who does, did this stupid stuff. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, oh, sweet. So all these smart, great, successful people that I know were also idiots back then. <laughs> <laughs> they also smoked breadsticks like cigars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I, I shouldn't laugh about it because I'm like, th- we did some stupid stuff yeah. that I'm like, oh, we could have died. Like some of it was so stupid that we shouldn't have done. But thank God no one got hurt or died and now I can just look back and laugh and put it yeah. in a movie and yeah. <laughs> other people can laugh and be like you're now an I'll idiot. Now I'll just put it on the big screen put it on the and big be done screen. with it. <laughs> but uh, coming back to what we said earlier as an artist and having those life experiences like you couldn't have created this movie without going through all of that. Mm-hmm. And maybe as air quote stupid as you want to say it is mm-hmm. like I know it's an experience. I'd say every great writer or creator director has had some type of life that they 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 were into stuff and just right something worth talking about out there doing something, meeting interesting people at the very least. You know, like you can't come up with an idea like yours without experiencing something like that like someone who maybe read books about things like that or just watched a lot of movies could come up with something but there'd be so many details that they would miss out on Mm -hmm. and i think it's necessary to 
I don't want to say live a like fucked up life, but you just have to have yeah. have those experiences and see the world a little bit, meet people, just yeah. take it all in. I totally agree with what you're saying. And I, I think I also agree with like you. I don't think you have to 100 percent have lived an experience to write about that experience. But there is a, a, like a gen, like a sincerity that comes with it when you're like, no, I, I, I know how my friends talked then like it mm-hmm. and then i think it, it will ring true when people see it on screen yeah. or whatever or whatever the art form is when they're like oh this person really does know like at least if you if you if you had to have gone through shitty stuff or weird stuff or uncomfortable stuff then if you exist now with those things in your toolbox why not use those for your art you have yeah. you have them anyway <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and why dig in there and explore them and then and then see what you make out of it. And I think that's well, I don't want to say that, that having bad things happen makes you a better creative person. But I, I've heard of uh just creative people who've actually had uh like tra- like actual physical trauma, like brain injuries, mm. and then they became this much better at what they were doing like their their brain wouldn't let them initially go into these directions and though however the wiring changed they were willing to go for anything uh what's the guy's name who wrote fight club chuck how do you say his oh, last name uh, pa- Pala, Polinuk, but, i know who you mean but he, he's sure he it. was uh in school as to be a writer and his professor said like yeah, he's you're pretty good but you know you're not great or something and then he i can't remember if he got jumped he, he had a, he had a brain injury oh, wow. and then his writing just he there's no bounds to what he would Whoa. create and he just became who he is it's a dangerous just, thing to Try. So. <laughs> you can go do fucked up things and see if I get become like, a better artist. Yeah. yeah. And, and people who are faced with adversity, <laughs> if you're not a creative person, I'm sure that's expressed in a different way. But if you don't you have are, to get hit in the head, right? Yeah. But. yeah. but if you're an artist and go through a hard time, like chances are that's going to come out in song form or whatever your mm-hmm. outlet is. It's just by nature what we do. But I think adversity is important in mm-hmm. building character. Yeah, yeah very much. Have you ever met someone who just had like a really normal childhood? They're so boring. <laughs> it's bizarre, actually, to find something to talk about with people who had normal yeah. lives. I actually do have this one friend in my mind who I, who I do lo- really love her. But I remember it came up once. I said something about childhood trauma. She's like, I don't really have any. And I was like, you said something anxiety. She's like, nope. I'm like, what? depression? <laughs> Nothing. So your parents were just good parents and... Like yes. I was, I was blown away. I was just like, I've never met one of you before. Like I've <laughs> yeah. never met someone like that. Uh, you know, she's great, but she's I'm just it blows my mind. She's not an artist. Maybe, maybe that's why. Mm. Maybe that's why. <laughs> maybe that's where all those quote unquote the normal people uh, went. They're not artists, so we don't hang out with them. Well, I think even just growing up in a small town, uh, like I never had like this big significant thing happen to me that altered my life, but like. I don't know, hearing your parents argue about money or like just mm-hmm. all these little things like kind of creep into your, your, who, who you become, I guess. And, uh, mm-hmm. it kind of forms you. Yeah. At least. Yeah. yeah. 
And yeah, you're watching, like, especially again in a small town, you see a lot of people struggle. And I couldn't imagine growing up, even in Halifax, like the big city where there's opportunities and stuff. Like where I grew up, like most people were just trying to figure out how to get their next meal, basically. Yeah. Can I ask you guys a question? Sure. What motivates you? What's like the biggest thing that motivates you to keep going with your art i'm kind of in a new place with that having very recently left a decade-long high-profile corporate career Mm, so so cool that was my identity for a long time and one that i don't regret but am relieved to be away from and i think this will change But right now, I am motivated by what I don't have to do versus what I am going to do. So I sort of start my day feeling grateful that I don't have to put on a pencil skirt and drive an hour to work and Mm. sit in an office all day. Like I I have that very clear awareness every morning. And it's like it's a it's a sincere gratitude of like, thank I almost feel like. I'm thanking myself for finally giving permission Mm -hmm. to step away from this thing I thought I was supposed to or had to do. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know yet, at least for my career as an artist, what will motivate me to be good at that. I'm still in a little bit of this transition area of figuring out, like, what does my day look like and what do I want to be and what stories do I want to tell and how do I want that to be represented? So I think I, I guess I'm motivated by giving permission to be myself Mm, and I want to normalize. And that's part of the purpose of this podcast. Really. I want to normalize being an artist as a valid and commendable and just great opportunity for young people, for all genders for if you're from a small town or not like this is this is not only an option but it's it's a beautiful life and Mm -hmm. it's not it's not just a risk it doesn't mean you're going to be poor it doesn't mean all of these things that maybe we were told so i'm i'm motivated to tell though your story like to tell the stories of our guests to tell our stories as a couple trying to make a go at it of artists and Mm -hmm. just to normalize that life that's a good, that's a good motivation. Yeah. Yeah. It might change, but right now that's where I'm at. That, I love that you're waking up in the morning feeling like, oh God, I'm so glad I don't have to go yeah. into the office. Yeah. Like that's a nice feeling, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And it's been a few months and that has not at all faded. Like mm. there's not been a moment of regret or like, yeah. oh, I kind of miss like, nope, I'm yeah. just good. I'm good to be here. That's great. Yeah. Dare And like having the guts to do the thing that other people don't have the guts to do. Well, did you get a lot of, I'm sorry, you've talked about this already on your podcast. I was going to say, did you get a lot of people being like, what are you doing? You're crazy. Don't quit your job. <laughs> Some. I had more people, though, say, like, I wish I could do that. Mm. Like, almost in a sad way. Yeah. That they, I, I you want to be able to say, mm-hmm. like, we'll just do that then. But everyone's life and circumstances yeah, are different, different, of course. And And I'm fortunate that I have enough of a skill to try to make a go at it. Uh, yeah, rather scary. than just quitting and, and have no idea. Yeah, and like, being I like, I now? guess I'll pick up a paintbrush and see if I can yeah. paint something. Start an OnlyFans, or, I guess. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's the secret yeah. that I should have passed along. But 
I, I had a lot of support, actually. I, I told myself a lot of doubtful stories uh, before I finally took mm -hmm. the step. But So you were, maybe part of you was talking yourself out of it a little oh, bit. Oh, completely, yeah. for, for a long time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, how about you, Mike? What's your... Yeah, what motivates you? Uh, well, I've always just loved to create. I, it's just, when I was like 19, 20-ish and had to work another job like all i could think was oh i can't wait to get home and play the guitar and try to write a song like mm. so the, pro the process you're in love the, the process definitely and i've after a certain point i almost felt like a responsibility to to be capturing these these things i'm seeing and like just I heard somewhere once it's an artist's responsibility to make sense of our emotions. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I, I kind of understand that. Like, I feel like I'm here to create these relatable things that people can experience and find whatever they need to in it, whether it's joy or maybe they need a cry from mm -hmm. hearing it. You know, like I, I felt kind of responsible in some way. Like, I don't know to who, it was just the universe or my fan base or just myself um but i felt feel kind of a responsibility to create and sum up my life experiences and i do i do love the process and now it is i i'm motivated also to to survive and so it, mm -hmm. it's emerging off that like i i've obviously still love to create but i do have to like, I we just got back from our trip, and I made sure I had three gigs this week, kind of thing. So I, like, had to go play a show that may or a couple shows. Maybe I, if I had ten million dollars in the bank, maybe I wouldn't have booked mm -hmm. them, kind of thing. But, but one of them I would have booked, even if I was a billionaire, kind yeah. of thing. You know, okay. <laughs> like. Uh, I was just so, about to ask that question, actually, which you just kind of answered. But, like, if you never had to work again for money. I would do exactly what I'm doing. But if you never had to work again, but nobody would ever hear your music, would you still be, like, just live in your mansion and just make your music at home? And um, even though, like, nobody would ever like, hear would, it. They wouldn't hear it live either? No. Because Like, you lives, can't share your music with anyone. Uh, you can only make it at home. <laughs> I don't know. This, this is tough. Because I do, uh, I do. You like the experience of of the audience relating to your music and stuff. It sounds well, like there's a yeah, big part of it for it's you. It's that uh, reciprocal, mm -hmm. um, just kind of feeding off each other. You know, like. Um, okay, hold on. I got another another question. Okay, okay. you got to choose one of these. So it's yeah. You never have to worry about money again. You have a billion dollars in the bank. Yeah. But no one will ever ever hear your art or. You can keep doing what you're doing. Everyone, everyone will continue to hear your art, but you gotta. You don't financially. You don't know. So uh, either I'm the exact same, exact same as now, <laughs> yeah, or billionaire, or, or a billionaire, but you can never share your music. Uh, I'd I'd probably well, billion dollars a lot. <laughs> yeah, but Travel no, no matter what, you but, can't so share like, your music. Even for like even if I was in. Uh, Costa Rica on a campfire. Nope. I couldn't couldn't even play a song. No. Nope. Okay, I'd I'd keep my life now then. I knew you were gonna say that. <laughs> yeah, that would change yeah. everything. See the motivation. Yeah, I don't I motivation is obviously not just money. Not that you said it was, but I just mean like yeah. obviously there's more to it. Yeah, just... I I I'm probably of everyone I've ever met in my life, I'm probably the person who cares the least about money. <laughs> but mm -hmm. um 
But, I but ha- we need it to live. So but yeah, I have a, the responsibility. Like we own a house here, and we have a, a vehicle and needs yeah. gas. Like uh, so, um, I'm very okay. We need to make this much. Like if we make more, that's amazing. And I feel like at some point we'll. Like I, I feel like the the thing about being an artist is that there's the ceiling is is unlimited, right? Like if you're yeah. a, t- a teacher, this is. What you're gonna That's just do. the max amount of your salary or yeah. whatever. Yeah. As an artist, like I don't know, like I, I, I'll, and it's impossible to do because if it's something you created, you can never compare. You can never listen to it completely subjectively or objectively. Sorry, you're always subjective to it. So, but I, when I try my hardest and listen to like, okay, this may be the best song I ever wrote. I compare it to something I'm hearing on the radio mm-hmm. or something that's. That that has done really well, made someone millions of dollars. I'm like, I'm not that far off, you know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like yeah. there's and there's more to having a successful career in music than just how good your song is. Yeah, there's, I know you guys uh, were talking about that in your success much, episode. Much more, there's like, like people you know, and that just the timing of yeah. exactly the song hits at the same time. People yeah. want it, and it's being marketed the perfect way. And yeah, yeah it's such a recipe. All that stuff. That I don't. Yeah, I don't think there's a one size fits all. And it doesn't mean that you're not good. If I mean, back to awards again. If you win an award, doesn't mean you're good. If you yeah. lose the award, doesn't mean you're bad. It's yeah. just like so many. Th- it, it's it's irrelevant in that way. It, and you have to get used to that. Like it, it's just inevitable that you'll have both those ups and downs in this life. Yeah, I know. If you're afraid of failure, then it's just not. Don't be an artist. Yeah, I was telling you, I, I teach uh, film classes sometimes and I, I have a little slideshow that I go along with the things I teach and the first slide says, you will fail. Yeah. And it's so important to me that I tell people yeah. if I sometimes I do talks at like NSCC or the community college or the um, sometimes I do through like the Atlantic Film Co-op, I'll teach things. And I'm like, if you cannot, fa- if you are afraid of failure and it really, really bothers you to fail, you get got to get out of the yeah. film industry because... And I think this is the way for any arts industry. It's like, yeah, nobody wants to fail. But some people are like, you know, some people are devastated by failure. Mm-hmm. Like so many people will never try because they're afraid they might fail. Can you imagine not trying because you're afraid you'll fail? What? It happens every day. So many people do that. It blows right. my mind. I'm like, but just try and fail. You're not going to die. And think of what doesn't exist because of that. I know. It makes me so sad. Yeah. So, and people have said to me, oh, I want to work in the film industry. And I'm like, oh, great. You know, like a 21 year old. And they're like, oh, but what if I try and I don't succeed? And what are you talking about? You're 21. Try for five years and fail if you, and then go do something else. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're not going to die from failed. failure. Like it's impossible not to fail. The yeah. most famous people of all time. Michael Jordan again got cut from his grade <laughs> 10 basketball team. I like this this story. Well, like, I'll, I'll, I'm going to correct you a bit. I think some people don't fail, but those people are very, very boring. Yeah, maybe. Anyone who's had any success in life has failed first. But I think some people grow up and they, they're like, well, I'm going to work at my dad's business because that's the family business. And I'm going to graduate high school and go right into this thing. And I'm going to retire at 65 and da-da-da. And there's nothing wrong with that life. That's fine. Yeah. But like, that's not 
you're not aiming for anything. If you want to aim for anything higher, mm-hmm. you will fail along the way and yeah. maybe get to the success or not. Maybe it will just be failure. <laughs> but if it's just failure, then at least you tried. Like it blows my mind. I would like my my worst fear would be like on my deathbed going, well, I never tried. Yeah, of course. And I, yeah, as opposed to I had this really cushy, predictable life. Yeah. Like there. Now I can I die. would much rather be like, I've failed a million times. Mm-hmm. That that means I tried a million times. Yeah. Rather than. Are you motivated by, I don't know, failure, but by rejection? Like, um, whatever, applying mm-hmm. for a grant or something you don't get and. Um, I don't know if it motivates me. It certainly doesn't bother me. Rejection does not bother me. And I've always, I've been very good. I think that's helped me a lot in my career. Like, I mean, I'll, I ask, you know how many people I've asked out and they've rejected me? Like, I ask out everybody. I'm like, do you want to date me? No. Do you want to date me? No. Do you want to date <laughs> People go, how are you not embarrassed when people say no? And I'm like, someone will say yes. Like, I'll end up dating someone. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, statistically make it, speaking make it, someone is make going it sound to say like yes. i'm really desperate i'm not just randomly asking strangers on the street this question i'm exaggerating you. a little you. well anyone here date me no uh but i guess what i mean is like i people have remarked on how vulnerable i allow myself to be because i am not afraid of that failure mm-hmm. and i'm like well, I'd rather ask out the person and maybe they'll say yes if i don't ask them maybe they'll, they'll not ask me and we'll never date like that's What's the problem? And I, so I, th- I feel that way also about about art or yeah. applying for. I, I the way I see it is like it's like a like an iceberg. Like the the part that you see above the water is like the success, and then the big part underneath the water that you don't see is all the failures, mm-hmm. all the rejection letters that you get from the millions of grants that you apply to that people say no, or the film festivals that have rejected me. Like I used to have them saved mm-hmm. so that I could see physically see how many rejections the rejection pile is so much bigger than the acceptance pile. But then most things are online now, yeah, so I don't a, actually have a physical you can keep paper a digital of rejection. Digital file, though. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't do the same as seeing the pile <laughs> yeah. get physically it bigger. It doesn't have the same weight. Yeah. Print them off. I yeah, think I it's important to share those stories publicly as well because like back to social media, we're posting like about these successes or things that have gone right for us, but it's, and not just, I don't know, like not, you, you see some exposure too on social media that you can tell is kind of about engagement and like I want for people to relate to this and so on. But it's it's like that real hard like, no, I got a hard no today from this thing that I really wanted. And yeah, like you even being honest about how it felt to lose the ECMAs. Yeah. Like, I love that. People don't being always honest. just openly talk about, you know what, like, yeah, I did feel this way. I was disappointed. I was kind of shitty. And it's it's so important just to have that conversation be part of this whole world too. Yeah. Yeah, and not not everyone's gonna react the same way as me. Not everyone who who loses is feels the same way. No, but, but instead, I win, and I feel guilty about yeah. that. So I don't know. We're what? we're all we're all different. <laughs> we're all right right we wrong. all have our issues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to ask you about one more thing, Steph. Before we wrap up, we watched your uh, CBC Gem documentary oh, thank you. that you did recently. Words matter. Words mm-hmm. matter. I just, I had so many questions come up at the time and wanted to wait until I got to speak with you in person. But just, I guess as a starting point, want to know like how how you chose this story or if it was you approaching Rebecca mm-hmm. or, and, and I also want to ask more about the technical aspects of doing that kind of 
film because mm-hmm. it's it's featuring a person and how does a script work in that kind of case? Yeah, I know writing documentaries is, is weird. Um, yeah, so that was my idea. I actually had a pitch for a series and uh, the series was called Women of Our Land and it was going to be a series taken across Canada because I have an indigenous background so I, I'm often looking for to tell indigenous stories and so I had this idea of of uh, one woman from each province and territory in Canada. Mm-hmm. So I have like one season be and just someone in their in their uh, in the community doing something remarkable and their and their connection to language and land. It was kind of the pitch. Um, so I pitched that series uh, to CBC and CBC were like, no, we're not going to do a whole series, but maybe a one off. So like we kind of discussed it. And then I I I don't know Rebecca Thomas. I didn't know Rebecca Thomas, but she she and I had a mutual friend, Tara Thorne. So I asked Tara, I was like, is Rebecca Thomas cool? Will she do a documentary with me? Um, so I reached out to her and I had to convince her a little bit because she was like, um, I don't like I'm not like she was essentially like I'm not important enough to do a documentary about, you know, like these kind of like the humble, the imposter syndrome thing. And I was like, no, you are. You're so interesting. And I've seen her do all kinds of media interviews and she's like really holds people accountable. And I just have so much respect for that kind of like tough, you know, uh, she's so smart and interesting and tough. Um, But she she agreed and she's like, okay, let's give it a shot. And she really trusted me with the process of it. Um, and, and then working with her was so great. I was like, Oh, I was kind of scared of her just because she's so, I was just thought she was just so smart yeah, she's that she force. would be too smart for me. And then I'd ask a question and she'd be like, that's a stupid question. And, and I, but she wasn't like that at all. She was so lovely and kind and, and so honest and vulnerable in her interviews. Um, so we shot with her for like eight, days or seven days of shooting so it's quite a while we had to cut out so much because the documentary is 20 it's a half hour tv so it's 22 minute documentary and uh we had to cut out so much so much good stuff but so that was the process of how it came to be and i really like doing documentary documentaries and then and and like night blooms being like a drama narrative movie and versus a documentary is such a different uh, muscle that you have to flex as a filmmaker. Because mm-hmm. one, you're telling someone else's story. So I want to be re- really respectful of Rebecca and her giving us her time and her story and sharing her journey with us. And and I want to represent her properly. But I, as a filmmaker, I'm always like scared to... like You can't really give the subject of your documentary creative control. Like I'm, I can't ask her, is it okay if I put the scene in or take the scene out? Like I'm the director, so I have to make that decision. But she has to trust that I'm not going to make her look bad, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a dance. Um, and I think she really likes the final product, which was like, oh, phew. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it, it, we both Powerful. felt like we really learned a lot, too, from in 22 minutes, which I don't imagine is an easy thing to, oh, good. to capture. But yeah, yeah she, she, I found as well, I, I don't know Rebecca either, but know her work and know, mm-hmm. you know, her from media and, and having a strong voice and representation. And another one of those people that from the exterior can feel like an intimidating person. Oh, yeah. I was intimidated. And in such a short time, you realize just there was a softness to her and an honesty and vulnerability side as well that really came out that whether or not I ever meet her feel like it changed that emotion towards her. So yeah, it's it's so cool that you're able to capture that and this snapshot of her life and her work. And, and she, yeah, she was so great and at ease as well in the filming. Mm -hmm. So she's so so charismatic on camera. 
And then to answer your question about the writing of documentaries is strange because there's not there's a little bit of voiceover at the beginning, which I wrote the voiceover. But then for the rest of it is like after you do all these interviews, you get a transcript of. So we did two days worth of sit down interviews with her and then other little sit down interviews, like some of her at work and some of her here and there. And so I would just read the whole transcript and like copy and paste. Okay, we can go from this clip. And that could segue into the scene here at the church. And then that could segue if we took this clip mm-hmm. into this. So then you're just, you, you call quote unquote writing the documentary, but you're not writing those sentences because she said them. But you're you're writing the, the story and how the story is going to flow. Putting the puzzle okay. together. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So. Did she help you in any way explore your background? Or was that something separate that you're on your own kind of journey with? Like with, with your indigenous, indigenous background? Uh, not really. Her and I talked a little bit about imposter syndrome, which didn't, most of that I don't think got into the final product. But there was a moment where she actually made me cry in the interview. <laughs> I was interviewing her <laughs> and she made me cry because we were talking about this identity of, so her background is that her father is is Mi'kmaq and her mother is white. And so Rebecca was not raised on, on a reserve, but she was raised by her mother, but she was aware that she has an indigenous father. So like throughout her life, this idea of like, well, am I native? Am I half native or whatever? And then she got a status card. So then she's status. And, and so my background is like, I have always been aware that my mother is indigenous. That's something that was part of my upbringing. My mother's been on the board of the native council of Nova Scotia for as long as I can remember, I have, I'm a member of that, of uh, the Native Council of Nova Scotia. So I would like go to drum circles and go to these things when I was a kid. But so that was not like, I know some people like later in their life are like, oh, I have indigenous heritage that I wasn't aware of. Like now let me learn about it. So that wasn't my background. I was aware of it. But then I always, always had this identity issue with I look more white. My mother looks more native than me and my relatives look even more native than her. Mm. So like I grew up around these these people being like I thought I looked like a native person too. And then but because I live in a small town being Yarmouth, everyone knows who the like my so my mother was from Labrador, so my background is is not Mi'kmaq, it's Inuit. So my mother's Inuit from Labrador. She moved here. Her whole family moved here. And they got, like, faced with a lot of racism, like, immediately. And they even had, like, some... They told me they had a petition going around to tell them to move out. And I was like, a petition for who? Who are they bringing this... Where are you going to bring the petition to make them move out? Anyway, but they want... Get out of our town. We don't want natives here. So, like, they dealt with all of that um, and continued to deal with racism that I saw. So in town, everyone knew I was, I was indigenous because of who my family was in our small town. So I thought I looked like a native person. And then I like moved away. And then people were like, you're native? And then you're white. And then I was like, oh, no. Now, oh, maybe I'm a white person. Yeah, now what? <laughs> so I had to struggle with this, like, that identity issue of like, well, how much should I identify on which side? Because my dad is... French Acadian. He's a white guy, and my mother's Inuit. And both of those things, I'm very happy and proud of those heritages. But I very much benefit from white privilege because I pass as a white person most of the time. So, like, I'm aware of that. I don't consider myself a person of color because I look like a white person. 
But I'm like, but, but then to completely not mention my indigenous heritage seems weird too. So then I had to struggle with like, um, my bi- my bio, for example. I had a, fr- a filmmaker friend said, "How come your filmmaking bio doesn't say you're indigenous?" Because it says Stephanie is a filmmaker, blah blah blah. And I said, I don't know, it just seems weird. Like, you can tell, right? If you can't tell by looking at me, why would I put it in a bio? And she's like, because people want to know that stuff. And, like, she convinced me. I was like, yeah, okay. So, but I didn't feel right putting Stephanie is indigenous and then not putting, but she's also French. Because mm-hmm. I felt weird mentioning mm-hmm. one parent, not the other. So, like, I really struggled with this. And I still am. I'm actually yeah. writing a mo- my next movie I'm writing about this called Non-Status. And it's about this sort of thing. Um mm. But yeah, so it was interesting as I mentioned that to Rebecca during our interview and she was talking about how I have to have some compassion for myself while I'm figuring this stuff out sort of thing. And and then I started crying and I was like, I know it's so hard, like imposter syndrome. You never know where to go. And then you don't want to you don't want to feel like you're taking it, quote unquote, advantage because being indigenous is like trendy now. So like people want to give more money to indigenous artists. And then I'm like. I don't want people to think I'm just suddenly claiming to be indigenous and I wasn't before because I always was proud. But then like, who cares what people think? Because I know the truth. There's so many very complicated. Yeah. Questions and doubt that come up around this enoughness. That was something that really stood out to me, actually, in this piece with Rebecca. And I I went through something similar with losing my hearing that we were talking about earlier, being deaf in in one ear. And it, it wasn't until someone from the disabled community said mm. pointed out to me like oh you have a disability and me being like no no it's not enough yeah i'm not disabled enough to to benefit I, from any sort of precisely yeah and felt guilty about that and like people as you're saying people don't see it so it doesn't count mm-hmm. like all these weird thing you tell yourself all of these things to kind of persuade your your identity otherwise and and it wasn't about being proud or not or ashamed or not it just I guess an imposter syndrome and like I'm not enough of this thing and when Rebecca claimed that in the documentary like it got me I I wonder how many people struggle with this like from having Mm -hmm. parents of different uh backgrounds or, Mm -hmm. or I mean it could be any number of things even being an artist like am I good enough at this to call myself an artist oh yeah that is one too all of these doubts come up so yeah so this is your next work let's close off the interview Mm. oh yes uh letting us know what's next (laughs) two hours later or whatever Mm. I just keep talking to him oh this this I could talk for another two hours but we won't we should do like a regular thing it'll be like uh, every two months there's actually three hosts to the podcast now I would love to do that every, we'll yeah, set a, sk- two we months, have, we're we going to have, have you a, back. I'm going to be a regular guest. Yeah, Get used talk, to it, talk, folks. Talk. Yeah. <laughs> I we're, love talking about me. Um, what was the question? Oh, what am I doing next? Okay, so I have, I've had a time travel script for the last few years that I'm desperately trying to make into, it's a feature film, like a dark, uh, gritty, uh, grounded sci-fi, I guess they call it, psychological thriller, really, time travel. Um, that I've been trying to make for a few years and I'm a writer, director and co-producer on it. And Mike Volpe is a producer on it and he's had quite a lot of success as a producer around here. He did like Mr. D and Trailer Park Boys and, and the he was a producer on The Lighthouse. So he has like a big background. Um, so he and I have been trying to get this movie made for since before night, even before Night Bloom. So we don't know. 
if that one will be made because it needs a bigger budget. And the bigger budget's harder to get that funding. So who knows? I really, really hope it's called Time Tripping. Mm -hmm. And I really, really love it. Uh, Aside from that, that script is done. If anyone's listening and want to invest in a time travel movie, give me a (laughs) call. Who doesn't? Slide to my DMs. Um, All you Hollywood producers out there listening (laughs) to Mike and Chris. All those sugar daddies out there. All the sugar daddies. Yeah, give me some money for this. Um, So that's ready. And then I'm I'm currently writing another script called Non-Status. And that's about identity and, and... and it's a character uh, like me who has one white parent, one indigenous parent, but really looks more white. And she lives with her cousin who has the same background, one white parent, one indigenous, but she really presents more native. So the kind of how their lives are differently, even though they have the mm-hmm. same same division, really with parents, but they're they're seen different ways in their community. Mm-hmm. So so that's what uh, that's what I'm writing now. And I got a little bit of funding to write it and develop it. So I'm really happy about that Great. and hopefully so that's a smaller one so i have these two movies one's a sci-fi one's a little bigger one's going to be a smaller more character piece so hopefully one of these two movies will come to be someday um and then i also have my grandmother my inuit great grandmother her name was elizabeth gowdy and she's from labrador she actually wrote and published a book about her life called woman of labrador so I actually have the rights to the book now. So I'm turning uh-huh. that into a script. That's, That's cool. super special. So I have three different things that are very different tonally. Yeah. <laughs> Tone-wise, they're three very yeah. different stories. Yeah. But uh, but I would love for any of those or all of them maybe to be made someday. So it's just a, now it's just a, a dance of like, who, where can I get funding yeah. for which one at what time and hopefully make one of them. So cool. Well, I can't wait. We'll you're see. up to some... Awesome and amazing things. We're truly honored to have you here on our podcast. And uh, we have a little treat to give you in a little <gasps> bit there. So, um, you do. Do, yeah, do we yeah. ever mention on air what our treat is we give to our podcast guests? No. So, for every podcast guest <laughs> we bring in, I make these white chocolate pumpkin truffles and they have oh, little yeah, scorbits on top. I started making them at Christmas time for like our one and only tradition. And they went over well, so I thought oh, this will be a good so way nice. to like lure in guests. So. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll send you off with those. To kind Can you of imagine stuff in your if I said no, and then home. you told me about the truffles? Like, oh, all right, I'll be there. It's <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that I'm here for. It's gonna happen. It'll be my leverage yeah. one of these days. I think <laughs> we just we appreciate your thank you for asking story me. and uh, just how honest you've been, and we're so excited to see your career blossom. Yeah. And see where it takes you. Yeah, maybe a drum solo in one of those Ooh. films that are coming up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. there you go. And we'll have you back in exactly two months. So. Yeah, <laughs> every two months I will be back here with more talking about me. <laughs> Dark things. I'll tell you how afraid of death I am then. <laughs> we can do a full podcast on our fears. Fears of things. Thank you. It was really fun. Okay, bud. Thanks so much.